Yeah, I'm happy to be with y'all um, from the CIMC community tonight. We were just meditating together, a number of us, and um, the wind was coming through the trees. I had the, the windows open. And um, so I was kind of connecting to the sound of the, of the wind. And um, I had this thought, wow, it sounds different. The wind sounds different. And um, what I realized was, oh, it's a dry wind. And I haven't heard a dry wind for weeks, <laughs> you know, because it's been so wet and humid. And um, I'm using this as kind of a, a case and like when we drop into this kind of knowing that's more embodied, that's more connected with our senses, we really um, feel our environment and we know our environment. And um, I think it's an art that was actually much more common a century or two ago. <laughs> now we go on weather underground, right? But I think, you know, a century or two ago, people would, you know, hear the sound of the wind in the trees and they would know whether dry air was coming or rain was coming. And, um, yeah, my hope is that we, is that we all learn to reconnect more deeply to our sense experience, to our embodied experience, um, so that we can start listening to this planet actually <laughs> and, um, and feeling deeply what's needed for us as a species and as a, as a whole also of in the, on the earth these days. So I see my teaching um, often as environmental activism. So that's related to the subject that we're talking about today. And, and I did say that it's related to some of the bigger challenges that we're facing as humans these days. And one of them, you know, that's in our face is climate change and, and the climate catastrophe. And um, hmm, we need to do something, don't we? <laughs> I think, but to, to do something, we need to be here. We need to be able to feel and experience the wind and, and the world around us. And to start to listen, really listen deeply and know in different ways, perhaps, and knowing in our minds. And so the usual way, as I said in the introduction, or Nick read in the introduction, is our usual way of knowing things is through our mind and our cognition. And it's, um, it's the way that's most highly valued in dominant culture, maybe not in um, other cultures uh, in our country and in the world, but in the dominant Western modern culture. Um, yes, knowing through the mind, through science, I'm not anti-science, but through science, through rationality, through logic, through thinking, through conceptualizing, through analyzing. Um, but I'm hoping that our practice helps us expand our ways of knowing, that we have access to that way of knowing, but that we have a much more expanded way of knowing. So how do we know the truth of things? How do we know? 
there's a study of this called epistemology. I'm not an epistemologist, but um, I'll give you some of my ideas. <laughs> so I read an, a, a, a sociology textbook from a, an academy called Sailor Academy. I don't know this place. It says there are several different ways that we know what we know including informal observation, selective observation, overgeneralization, authority, and research methods. Research methods are a much more reliable source of knowledge than most of our other ways of knowing. So there it is, right? The, the kind of the prioritizing of, of cognitive analytical knowing that breaks things down into separate pieces. So, I, and so modern culture, and I'd also say that patriarchal conditioning teaches us that we know everything through the mind. I'd say we've been in trouble ever since. I think, therefore, I am. The supremacy of cognitive knowing. One of my favorite quotes in this um, subject matter is from Audre Lorde, the self-described black feminist lesbian poet. She says, the white fathers told us, I think therefore I am. And the black mothers in each of us, the poet whispers in our dreams, I feel therefore I can be free. I'm going to repeat it. The white fathers told us, I think, therefore I am. And the black mothers in each of us, the poet whispers in our dreams, I feel, therefore I can be free. So there are other ways of knowing and these ways of knowing um, move more, much more towards feeling, feeling the heart, feeling the body feeling even the truth that our cells know. So as I said, our dominant culture is very biased towards cognitive knowing and we're so embedded in that paradigm that we don't realize we're embedded in that paradigm. We don't know it. It's so taken for granted that we know things through cognition, intellect, analysis, and of course, this is all very useful. You know, we don't want to throw this out, but, but can we expand our ways of knowing? I mean, we're so embedded in that way of knowing that other ways of knowing are either ignored or disparaged even, right? The heart knowing, knowing through feeling and emotion can be disparaged. Intuition can be suspect. This is because of this dominance of um, the paradigm of cognitive truth. Somebody named Robert Nairn, I think he might be a Tibetan Buddhist. Just as we cannot weigh moonbeams, just as we cannot weigh moonbeams, that doesn't mean that they don't exist. My perception is that by fixating on scientific method as the only authentic means of inquiry, we have trapped ourselves in a culture of scientism. 
we have developed a shrunken, limited perception of our humanity. So we ourselves have become shrunken and limited. We have lost touch with much of our being, the spiritual part of ourselves. The result is alienation. You could say that we face an epidemic of alienation in modern culture. And I think a lot of it is this. I mean, there's many reasons perhaps, but a lot of it is this. um, We've learned to live, you know, I guess it's in our heads. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know where the mind's located, but that's where we put it, right? So we've learned to kind of live up here or maybe a little bit out here. And, and of course we feel immunated because there's so much of us that we're not in touch with. And yet we have the opportunity, right? To learn how to heal that alienation. Uh, last fall, I was at a wildlife refuge on the ocean and um, a class of kids was there, you know, this was during COVID. So they were studying outside and I was really happy to see all these kids at the marsh. I thought it was great. Um, And then I watched one of the leaders instruct a kid what to do. She said to him, well, grab a pad of paper and a pencil and a ruler. And then she kind of hesitated, not even really sure what to have him do next. All the other kids were all playing something. So she finished by saying, and measure something. And I was so disappointed <laughs> in her instruction, you know, grab some paper, go measure something, you know. And um, to me, that, that felt like such a disconnect. I wish that she had said to her, go sit by the marsh and um, the salt marsh, it was a salt marsh, and feel what it's like and smell the salt air and listen to the birds and then come tell me, come back and tell me what you learned. That's what I had hoped for. And that's more the kind of um, shift that I'm hoping we will make as a, as a culture from relying on just measuring things to, to um, learning how to be in touch with the environment around us. Because when we drop into our embodied presence, what we're dropping into is relationship. We're dropping into relationship with all of life around us. Not only the relationship within ourselves, but the relationship with the wind and the trees. That's what heals the alienation. So this is the good news is that our Buddhist meditation practice opens us to other ways of knowing. Ways of knowing based in the heart and the body and to me, even the cells, like so embodied. And these are the ways of knowing that liberate the heart and the mind. And as I said, I think they offer us a chance for healing on a societal level in so many ways. So let's look a little bit more at how cultivating these other kinds of knowing can connect us more deeply with the truth of life and lean us towards this liberation of heart and mind. So the kind of knowing that's emphasized in Vipassana practice is more direct than cognitive knowing. So we have cognitive frameworks that we use like the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path 
Four Foundations of Mindfulness. And these are all very useful, all the teachings, all the lists. You guys know if you've been around a while that Buddhism loves lists. It's actually a very well-organized cognitive religion. Um, and they're useful, but I think we know that, that understanding all of that cognitively isn't enough to free the heart and the mind. Understanding them intellectually doesn't usually change our hearts, doesn't free them. We need a more intimate kind of knowing if we're going to um, free the heart and the mind or if the heart and mind are going to liberate themselves. It reminds me of a story that I um, heard um, from Joanna Macy. Some of you might have heard of her. She's a white eco-psychologist. Um, oh, she must be 90 by now. She's pretty close if she's not 90 and she's still going strong. She's an amazing woman. Done a lot of work around environmental um, healing. Um, was very involved in the anti-nuclear movement, nuclear movement many years ago. A, a deep thinker and, and a Buddhist. And so one time many years ago, she was writing her PhD on dependent origination, which is a very detailed Buddhist teaching on the kind of 12 um, uh, factors in the wheel of samsara that keep, um, keep it going and, and very detailed teachings. And so she's telling this Tibetan Lama all about all, you know, everything she's learning and studying everything here. And, She's kind of hoping he's going to be a little bit more enthusiastic about like everything that she's telling him, but he just listens kind of patiently. And then finally he says, and how does this help you develop more compassion? And um, she was stunned <laughs> and, and it was obviously a very transformative moment for her because she wrote about it later. He wanted to point her towards, you know, this more intimate knowing in the heart and the body, which, which is the kind of knowing that opens our hearts, which is the same as freeing our hearts, opening our hearts, same thing. Letting, going, letting go of the contraction and the clenching in the, in the heart, mind. So back to cognitive knowing. Cognitive knowing is a step away from our direct experience. It's a mind-based kind of knowing. Um, it's based on past experiences, assumptions, and conditioning. It's pretty prone to delusion, actually. So cognitive knowing, it's like it's we have this perception, something hits one of our sense doors and we perceive it, we see it and per perceive it. And then with all of our past knowledge, experiences and conditioning, we start coming up with a story about life or this thing or how things are and, and um, embellish it, papancha, right? If you could we papancha it and... Um, Yeah, it's, it's tricky. <laughs> Cognitive knowing is tricky. Because it's stale in some ways. It's not so fresh because it, 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 
it, as, I, as I said, it's made up of all of our conditioning and the ways we usually see things. And so you, know, you see something and, and, and you think it's what um, you're conditioned to see. I could say, I could talk all hour about that. I'm fascinated by it, but we better move on. So Vipassana practice is pointing towards a more direct moment-to-moment connection with what is happening. So it's not about the stories, right? About what's happening and the the made-up part. It's It's like, can I connect directly moment by moment with my experience, my embodied sense experience? including this, the mind as the sixth sense. And it's meant to develop a kind of intuitive wisdom, which is a different way of knowing. So cognitive knowing goes, oh, this is the way it is. Intuitive knowing goes, oh, it's simpler and cleaner. And usually, I mean, you have to check it out, but it usually is closer to the truth. So it's not reasoned, it's not thought out, but learned from our intimacy with our own experience. You guys following me? Is this making sense? No? It's interesting because I, I teach um, the person in Spanish sometimes. And um, the translation for insight meditation, sometimes it's actually hard to translate. But one translation I've heard is meditación intuitiva. Intuitive meditation. It's one way that insight meditation is translated. And it's also interesting because Spanish has two words for to know where we have one word, they have two. And so when we're trying to learn Spanish as English speakers, it's hard because you have to learn to distinguish what we call one word to know into two different words. So one word is saber. Saber is to know like a fact. To know cognitively, basically. And then the other word is conocer. And conocer is to know more like to become familiar with. So like you would know a person. So knowing a fact and knowing a person is different experience, right? And in Spanish, there's two different words. And we're more interested in the second one, in Vipassana meditation, not saber, to know cognitively, but conocer, to know intimately, to become familiar with. I am, I've been exploring this for a long time, I think. <laughs> as, I, as I remember more and more like my childhood, I see that earlier and earlier, I used to kind of practice this kind of intimate knowing. And um, recently I've been remembering when I was like seven or eight and uh, I grew up in a household of 10 people, eight kids, and usually a, a few dogs and many cats. It was just, Every, every kid wanted their own pet. So we had like a very, 
And uh, it was a bit much for this sensitive um, young young girl. And so I used to go outside and sit in the pine tree, under the pine tree. Oh, there's one pine tree I had that had a little cave. And so I would go sit under the pine tree. And I remember I just loved it in the pine tree. And I had a couple other thickets that I would sit in. <laughs> and I would just kind of sit and just be there, you know? And it was, it was, I think, you know, I felt like I was trying to connect with some kind of way of my being that was um, more intuitive. And then some of you have heard this story, but when I got to be even older and um, my family would go camping, I would go off to this field, this meadow, I was maybe 13, 14. And I do an experiment called finding myself. And what I would do was like, what I realized kind of on my own is that I would feel like I found myself if I um, rested in seeing, hearing, feeling my body sitting in the meadow, smelling. You know, if it was like the sense experience, I would feel like I found myself, but I would notice that if I spent the time thinking and lost in stories, I wouldn't feel like I found myself. So in some ways, Vipassana is about finding ourselves you know, through this intimate connection with our sense experience. John Donahue, the, I think, Irish-American writer, poet. <laughs> the senses are generous pathways that can bring you home. A renewal. Indeed, a complete transfiguration of your life can come through your attention to your senses. Your senses are the guides to take you deep into the inner world of your heart. The senses are our bridges to the world. Your senses are large pores that let the world in. By being attuned to the wisdom of your senses, you will never become an exile in your own life, an outsider lost in an external spiritual place that your will and intellect have constructed. The senses can warm and heal the atrophied, atrophied feelings that are the barriers exiling us from ourselves and separating us from each other. We belong beautifully to nature. The body knows this belonging and desires it. It does not exile us either spiritually or emotionally. The human body is at home on the earth. It is the splinter in the mind that is the sore root of so much of our exile. So again, pointing to that homecoming, that finding ourselves, that healing of alienation through our deep connection with our sense experience, which is an embodied kind of knowing. Interestingly, the Buddha taught, you know, the four foundations of mindfulness. And the first foundation is the body. It goes into incredible detail about connecting with the body. And also it's in most pages, it's pages and pages 
um, of instructions compared to like the second foundation is one little paragraph, <laughs> but the first foundation of the body, so detailed. And it's because it's foundational and also because it's so important for our freedom. I would say that the body knows through intuition. It's like a gut sense. And often meditative insights can feel like they come from the belly up. And, um, and then they become a cognitive understanding. Then we do kind of integrate them cognitively, which is great. We're not trying to control out our brains. Um, but what we're looking for this balance and this cooperation between the kind of knowing in our minds and the kind of knowing embodied knowing through our senses. And to me, sometimes like I feel like meditative insights have to percolate all the way down to the cells. So for example, when I practice metta meditation, I really want to see if I can understand metta on a cellular level. I want to see if my cells understand it. The cells have a way of knowing also. They're very intelligent. They do all kinds of things, let things in. Actually, they're very, you know, very, I'm very interested in the fact that they kind of let some things in and don't let other things in and they have to know like what to let in and not to let in. And I think if we come from an austere background, our cells are rigid because they've learned that you don't wanna to let too much in. And there's a kind of um, alienation there. And so like with metta meditation, we can teach ourselves, like it's okay to let some things in. We still use our cellular intelligence but and like, how do we teach ourselves to relax, you know, related to equanimity? And so I, I like that. I like meditative insight to go all the way down to the level of the cells. So we can see how far our intimacy can go. Very deep, this kind of intimacy. And then as we become embodied, right, as we're learning to know through the body, we're also connecting with the heart, learning to know through the heart. And the embodied heart knows through emotion. As I said earlier, emotion is not um, often, I mean, it isn't certain people, certain groups maybe, but not the dominant culture emotion as a way of knowing is not so valued, it's considered suspect, <laughs> not logical enough, right? And we can see this bias too in Buddhist teachings and perhaps even in our Buddhist communities. We might have this bias that we, you know, we should always be kind of calm and chill. <laughs> <laughs> nothing perturbs us, right? But that's, that's not an alive human being. 
Now, obviously, we have to know how to work with our emotions. Because yes, when we get caught in the stories of the emotion and the drama of the emotions, yeah, they, they, they tend to have some bias to them, <laughs> right? We're angry at somebody and the story tends to be a little biased in our favor. Um, so yes, you know, there can be delusion there. But what about when we can know emotion very purely, as I was kind of saying in the um, talk, where we can drop into our hearts and just feel. I find that when I can just feel on a, just a pure level, no stories, no drama, just feel, that often some intuitive wisdom can arise. It's like, oh, okay, so that's, uh-huh. It's something, oh, like that's what I need to do. Or, oh, that's where I'm being hooked. So if, if we give space to the heart, the heart is a very valuable way of knowing. If we can learn how to um, yeah, make space in our hearts for what is arising. And it's a way to peace. I was talking to a student today and she was talking about a sitting that she had where she had so much going on. So she sat down and she said, okay, whatever it is, just all of it, okay, all right, I surrender. I'm just gonna feel this and let it be. And then she said, I was shocked. Like 10 minutes later, it just all cleared up. And I felt so clear. And I was like, yeah, because you allowed it and you gave it space and you cared for it, right? So we, we do have to know how to work with the heart, but when we do, it's a valuable place to know. So it's like knowing through the heart, it's, it's a quieter way than the drama of, the, of emotion, right? The drama is pretty loud and entangled. You can feel all entanglement, but there's a quiet way where we drop in and we, and we, and the quiet, it's a quiet place that usually has the, the wisdom. It's usually like, oh, okay. Yeah, all that. Mm -hmm. So these ways of knowing through the body, through the heart, through the cells, transform how we see the world. Cognitively, we tend to see the world as separate from us. That's what the cognitive mind does. And it's useful. I want to just make sure that that's acknowledged. But it, but it, it separates us and then the, it's so that we can manage things, other people. <laughs> and if it's not balanced, it's so that we can control and manipulate other things. So it others the world, the cognitive mind creates separation in order to figure things out. But these other ways of knowing, the sense-based embedded knowing, they create um, homecoming and belonging and relationship. an understanding of the aliveness of the world, impermanence, if you will, but I like aliveness, <laughs> the aliveness of the world. 
So all things become alive and we become co-alive with all things through this kind of knowing. Susan Murphy, an Australian um, Zen teacher who has a delightful book, what's it called? Upside Down Zen, worth reading. And the dearest, she said, and the dearest thing about having this very body is how it establishes indissolvable, indissolvable, all right, I'm going to start the sentence over. And the dearest thing about having this very body is how it establishes indissoluble kinship with all beings and all kinds of beings, as well as trees, oceans, and even puddles. So the intimacy extends beyond just with our own body, it extends into the world. We enter our with the world as um, Thich Nhat Hanh says. Richard Wagamese, an Ojibwe uh, writer from, from Canada, no longer with us. He's talking to an, an older woman, uh, a spiritual guy. Me, what is the point of prayer and meditation? Old woman, to bring you closer to the great mystery. Me, so I can understand? Old woman, no, so you can participate in it. So there's a, you know, the two ways of knowing, the understanding and the participation. And he also said, being spiritual is just opening myself to living and allowing myself to absorb and be absorbed at the same time. Kind of healing the alienation, aren't we? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And while this is, you know, an indigenous um, uh, writer, um, our meditation practice points us or can point us this way. It can point us other ways too. <laughs> but but if we if we choose to engage in a very embodied heartfelt practice that can point us this way. Here's another thing um, Richard Wagami said. The overwhelming awe and wonder we feel teach us more than we can ever glean or come to know of things. In the presence of that wonder, the head has no answers and the heart has no questions. The head has no answers and the heart has no questions. Homecoming. So I want to make sure I leave some time for questions. Oh boy. <laughs> so this body and sense knowing, um, it's much more fun. I think it's much more beautiful, but it's also more vulnerable. 
you know, because if we're connected, we're not as, you know, alienation is protection. Even if we don't like it, <laughs> it's protected because we can't be touched. But if we um, really allow our senses to open and to develop intimacy with this body, we are allowing ourselves to be touched. We're touching and allowing ourselves to be touched by life and it's vulnerable. It's one of the reasons we can't get into thought stories fast enough because they feel like things are more in control. Because one thing, you know, Buddhism teaches us or life teaches us that is that life is wild. It changes all the time, it's so alive. And it's really not very controllable most of the time. That's a vulnerability. So at the same time as we settle into this embodied knowing, we have, we, we're developing and we need to develop strength and confidence and trust in ourselves that we can deal with life. That's the only way we're gonna allow ourselves to be touched. And every time we sit down and, and go through a meditation period, we're learning that. And then on top of it, life's gonna throw you some nice, good, big challenges to teach you that, right? Whether it's health challenges or financial challenges or dealing with oppression or um, we start to have confidence in ourselves that we can be this intimate with life. We can deal, we can do it. Hmm. So I, I, I don't actually have anything against thinking and thought stories. <laughs> sometimes, you know, like I was on one retreat and, and the mind, you know, wanted to think sometimes, sometimes I say, okay, you can think if you need that, that's all right, honey. <laughs> You know, sometimes you just need a little thought story. You need to kind of get out of here. And, um, and so, you know, I think we have to just be really kind and not kind of set up some ideal now that, that we're not, you know, that the cognitive mind is bad and we're going to stay out of it and always be connected in our bodies and with an open heart because it's just not realistic. But we head that way and we can head that way more and more. I'm a case in point. When I came into my adult life, I was, man, I was anxious. <laughs> I spent a lot of time worrying. I was a master worrier. And um, yeah, I've learned to trust something besides for the worrying mind. Something deeper and quieter and Precious, very precious. You know, and this and this also this embodied knowing offers us um, simplicity, which and rest. Ah, oh, we're craving that, you know. I was going to say in the meditation, but I didn't want to talk too, too much. It's like, if you have moments where you feel like you're just rested with this 
primary anchor, this home base, I can enjoy it. I can enjoy the simplicity of letting go of the drama of the cognitive mind. Yeah. That quiet or stillness or simplicity that we really crave, we really want. It's our rest. It's a healing of the illumination. One of my heroines is Robin Kimmerer. She's a, um, a trained biologist and indigenous woman. I usually try to remember her tribe, but I'm sorry, I forgot it. I think it's important to specify which tribe um, indigenous folks are from. But she really combines these two ways of knowing so beautifully. So she's a trained biologist. She knows how to do science and research and methods and, and all of that. And yet um, her, her, her indigenous roots and, and teach her about this other way of knowing that's um, so sense-based and so in tune with the world around her and so able to receive it and to give back. She's really into reciprocity we receive and we give back. So many of you have read Braiding's Sweetgrass. And um, at one point she describes the way different raindrops sound on different plants. No, how raindrops sound when they go through different plants of different sizes and hit the water. And it's just so, it's kind of like the sound of the wind in the trees. She's so connected and, um, and embedded in the liveness of her world. And she talks about how she learns from the plants and the trees and, um, and, 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 and has relationships with them. So to her, you know, and, and to me, from this embedded kind of knowing, it's like we have relationships with everything. Remember a beautiful description of like when she wants to pick some flowers, her mother's coming to visit and she wants to pick some flowers. So she says, somebody asked her, how do you go about that? She says, well, first I ask the flowers if it's okay to pick them. And if they say, okay, then I pick them. And if they say, no, I don't, I explain to them that my mother's coming to visit and I want some flowers, you know, and then I leave something for them, maybe a little bit of tobacco. And um, it's so respectful, right? And like, that's the kind of relationship I feel like we're going to need to have with the earth if we're going to survive as species. And it comes not from the cognitive, it comes from the heart. And from this, this ability to, to really sense our environment. And her practice helps us do that. One of my favorite Zen um, teachers, Dogen, a Zen master from, I think, the 1200s from Japan. He said, I hope I didn't lose it here. Let things come and abide in your heart. Let your heart respond. Let your heart go out and abide in things. 
There it is, that reciprocity, that intimacy from the heart, that way of knowing. He also said, I came to realize clearly that mind is no other than mountains and rivers and the great wide earth, the sun and the moon and the stars. Some depth there, huh? <laughs> Some healing of alienation. So the cognitive, as I said, the cognitive mind separates and then uses and manages things. And if it's um, balanced with the, the, the heart and the embodied ways of knowing, then things can work out okay. But if it's not, then, then this cognitive rational um, type of conditioned um, being tends towards coercion and towards manipulation and exploitation. So what we see is that this primacy of the cognitive mindset unbalanced by these other ways of knowing supports the attitude of human supremacy, which is the idea that we humans are considered the most important and supreme thing and everything else is for our manipulation, benefit, plundering and control. So it sets up oppression, modes of oppression. So not just human supremacy, but white supremacy and, and other forms of oppression. Because there's this separation, right? There's separation. And then there's control, manipulation, and power. So we see this in our world now. You know, we, we're in an unbalanced world. I don't think that's news to you folks. And um, we see it, you know, the dominance of the rational mind and the logical mind and the analytical mind um, that we decontextualize and we miss the larger picture of what's happening and we miss the connection through relationship. And so the result is income inequality social injustice and environmental destruction. A picture that's making the rounds recently, maybe some of you saw it, is of the um, water protectors in Northern Minnesota. So I'm from Minnesota, really connect with this. Uh, that there's a pipeline um, going through indigenous lands and um, a, a, a very strong movement of water protectors um, challenging this. And this picture shows a line of um, indigenous or indigenous supporters, but possibly indigenous. They're sitting on their, their horses or standing on the backs of their horses. Two of them I think are standing on the back or three maybe are standing on the back of their horses. And they're facing the, um, the police who are you know standing with the, all their tactical gear on. And um, 
What I love about their this picture is that their that their comfort with embodiment is very clear, and their comfort with you know, like to be able to stand on a horse's back, you have to be really comfortable with your body and you have to know how to relate, you know, with your horse, with the horse and with the earth. And um, you can feel their deep ties to the earth and their desire to protect the water through generations. So there's all that embodiment and relationship. And you could say the police, I have nothing against police, but in this case is, as um, representatives of science, progress, and um, extractive mentality. So the cognitive mind unbalanced has an extractive, you know, the mentality is what can I get out of this? And um, they look very stiff and uncomfortable. <laughs> and it's just kind of interesting to look at the two, the two worldviews are coming right up against each other. And we see this actually many places, you know, Black Lives Matter, um, you know, uh, the, the, what was the one with the 99%, um, the 1%, whatever, where they encamped in New York City, I'm forgetting the, the name, uh, what was it? Occupy, was it Occupy? <laughs> Sorry, I'm getting old. Occupy Wall Street, thank you. <laughs> you know, you can see it's like really what's happening is these two worldviews are coming together and they're they're clashing. And the jury's out, isn't it? The jury's still out on what's gonna predominate, how it's gonna unfold. Because see this embodied, this um, intuitive way of knowing, it doesn't unfold linearly. So the jury's still out, we'll see, we'll see. <laughs> I have to tell the story, I said I wasn't gonna tell it, but I'm gonna, so yesterday I saw these two world views clash. <laughs> My car, I have a car that's a few years old and it has, um, 19,000 miles on it and the tires are beyond gone. So I went to the dealership because my, my local mechanic said, you know, that's really, your tires should last longer than that. So I went to the dealership and I'm talking with the people there and, um, and they're all like, yeah, your tires need to be replaced. Yeah, it's early. So we had a relationship, things were going fine. And then um, they decided to take the car back and measure like all these different measurements in the tire to determine whether they were going to do anything to help me out. And so first of all, it took us 40 minutes to get to that point. And then they had my car for 40 minutes measuring the tires. <laughs> and then they came out and said, I'm sorry, the measurements, you know, we can't do anything for you. <laughs> I was kind of upset, but then I really realized it was the two world views. You know, one world view is rational measurements and, and the other world view, which they had originally connected with was relationship. And, and, and it was, and that helped me when I was like, okay, well, just two different ways of seeing the world. But what was interesting is I didn't like, I didn't like being a subject to the, um, the numbers. I felt alienated, you know, by the, by the numbers 
alienating that uh, it wasn't the money even it was it was a feeling of alienation i wanted the relationship i'm not telling you which dealership it was <laughs> okay let's see if i can finish up so that you guys can have some time if you want to say anything So practice can help us reclaim these more intimate ways of knowing. And as I said, I think it will help us save the planet, save the species perhaps, but we can start with ourselves, you know, by learning ourselves how to have these wider ways of knowing the world. And this is our birthright. This is part of our human life that meditation can help us reclaim. So we all have this strong bias to navigate the world with our minds because we've been acculturated that way. But we can um, reclaim navigation methods, so to speak, that, have, that, that we have deep within our own beings that include feeling and sensing and embodiment. And so in our practice, we learn to connect over and over again with the body and the heart. We learn to release the cognitive grip as we talked about in the meditation period. We learn to relax into this intimacy, to open to wider ways of knowing and to escape the, that you could say, the prison of the primacy of the cognitive mind. So I think I'll stop here. I think that's enough for tonight. Nothing else to say. Thank you for gathering together, giving me an opportunity to talk about a subject I love, giving each other an opportunity to gather in spiritual friendship. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.